you please take your Bibles and turn in them to Matthew chapter 21. And as you're doing that, let me just mention a couple of things by way of reminder. Uh, First, today uh, it was noted in the bulletin that our nursery for the littlest ones was available during the sermon portion of church only. We wanted everyone to be able to to be here to sing Christmas carols and to hear the, the festive Christmas worship uh, but during the sermon, it is available, so if you've been waiting on that, now is your time. Uh, the nursery is available for the littlest ones, although we do welcome and even encourage all children to stay and to worship alongside their families. Secondly, we have a prayer book uh, that we share prayer requests in so that we can be faithful to be praying for one another throughout the week, and that is being passed around during the service. Uh, it's somewhere going back this side, and then it'll hopefully turn and come back the other side, so Uh, Be on the lookout for that as it comes around today. Uh, Matthew 21 is our passage today. You're welcome to follow along in the bulletin. It's it's printed there for you, uh, or you can use your own Bibles. Matthew 21. The last several weeks, uh, we've been looking at the first two chapters of Matthew, some of the very traditional stories of the the birth narratives of Jesus and uh, Aubrey even commented to me last week that, that she was a little surprised that we were looking at the, the Christmas story at Christmas time. If you've been here a few years, perhaps you know that I, I like to be a little bit creative and a little non-traditional at Christmas time, and we look at sometimes Old Testament passages that teach us about Christ or that point us to his coming. Uh, but this year, we were in Matthew, we were looking at the traditional birth narratives of Jesus in Bethlehem and the manger. Uh, but I just couldn't last the whole month doing that, so today we're in Matthew chapter 21. Looking at this uh, passage, the triumphal entry, we know this, it's a very traditional passage that we read on Palm Sunday, the week before Easter, and yet as I looked at this, this has so many Christmas themes, themes that we're used to talking about in December that are here in this passage as well. And so I'm going to read for us Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11. Let me ask you, if you're able, would you please join me in standing for the reading of God's holy word today? Matthew 21, starting in verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We bless you that you are a God who has 
not chosen to remain hidden or distant, but you have revealed yourself to us through your word, and you have revealed yourself to us uh, ultimately perfectly in Jesus Christ, the Son of God who came and took on flesh, was born as one of us, who became a baby at Christmas time so that we might praise him and love him and in our hearts proclaim, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. So Lord, we pray for your help. Lord, by your spirit, open our eyes to see the wonderful things in your word that we might grow in our love for you, that we might grow in our faith, that we might be renewed in our joy, that we might be restored in our hope, and that we might be grounded in your mercy. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I was reading this week an older theologian who was somewhat lamenting perhaps a little bit that uh, as he looked around Christendom, these days, and the practice of the church, he said that he, he couldn't help but notice that, that the church's celebration of Christmas has really become the main celebration in the life of the church, even eclipsing our celebrations of Easter. Even though he wanted to point out, traditionally Easter, of course, is, is theologically far more central to the faith, not that you can pick one without the other, but at Easter, we celebrate the, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, about which Paul says, if Jesus has not been raised, then our faith is in vain. And we are of all people most to be pitied. That is the central reality, the central truth of the Christian faith. That is why we worship. And of course, Christmas cannot be celebrated without Easter. It makes no sense for us to, to celebrate the fact that Jesus came if we don't remember why he came, that he came to die, that his purpose from the very beginning, from the time of his birth, from before the time of his birth, he had a purpose in mind. The angel said, you will call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And so it makes sense to me then to say, if we can't celebrate Christmas without thinking ahead to Easter, then let's Flip ahead a little bit to chapter 21. And even as we're getting ready in two days to celebrate Christmas together and with our families, we need to be thinking about why Jesus came. Not just the stories of his birth, not just the manger and the shepherds and the wise men, but to keep it in the bigger picture that Jesus came to die. He came to save a people from their sins. He had a mission that he knew from the very beginning that he was inescapably headed during his entire life towards the cross, towards the resurrection. So today on this last Sunday before Christmas, I, I'd like us to look at this passage. It, to me, this passage is halfway between Christmas and Easter, at, at least theologically. Right? The themes are the same. We're, we're hailing the entry of Jesus. In this passage, it's not his entry into our world. It's his entry into Jerusalem. And I'd like, as we worship Jesus today, that, that we think about not only the fact of his coming, and not, <clears throat> not only the gifts that were given to him, but to think about who he is, to think about the gifts he brings to give to us in his mercy. So three, three quick points that come from this uh, passage that we read. I want us to see that, that Jesus comes to be a better king and to provide his people with a better hope, and to give to his people a better joy. A better king, a better hope, a better joy. First, realize this, Jesus is a better king. 
Think about the way that this story plays out here in, in chapter 21. Jesus, at the beginning of this story, in this chapter, is completely in control. Right? Jesus is in charge of everything that is playing out here. He knows exactly what he's doing. He's orchestrating this event to go how he wants it to go. So here is Jesus and his disciples. They're coming towards Jerusalem. There would have been thousands of people coming towards Jerusalem at this time. Right? They're, they're all coming. All the pilgrims from all over Israel are coming to Jerusalem. Passover is coming up, and so they're coming to celebrate the feast. So this would have been a busy road, a busy highway, right? Traffic, we can identify. Uh, and he's coming into Jerusalem. And as he's doing this, uh, he knows that these actions are going to be public, right? This is all, all the people are coming. So he's, he's acting intentionally here. And he tells two of his disciples to go ahead and they're going to commandeer a couple of donkeys. And he tells them that if the owner of these donkeys objects, just tell them the Lord needs them. And Jesus is in complete control. He knows his authority. And he says, if he objects, tell him that the Lord has need of these donkeys. And then he tells them how that person is going to respond when they explain that the Lord needs the donkeys. Right? We see this here. Uh, it's it's uh, the end of verse 3 where he says, if, you know, if anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. Jesus is in complete control. He knows how this is going to play out. And he tells them not only what to say, but what will happen in response to what they are going to say. And Jesus, as Lord, who is in control, is entering as king. He's entering the city of Jerusalem, the capital city of Israel, as its king, its rightful owner. <clears throat> Matthew quotes these lines from Zechariah. All of verse 5 are about the king who's coming into his city. Jesus is doing this intentionally, right? He, he knows he's making this scene by gathering these donkeys and riding in triumphantly. Uh, and he's not surprised when the crowds gather. This is part of his plan, that the crowds are there to see him, that they will see Jesus coming. They know he's the prophet and they are going to hail him as king. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they're taking off their cloaks and they're putting them on the street. They're cutting down branches, right? <clears throat> Matthew just tells us they're branches. We need uh, the account from John to learn that these are palm branches. But they're cutting these palm branches. They're putting them on the street. This is a royal procession, and all the people recognize that. They're hailing him as the son of David. That means he is the king, the coming king, the one who's been promised. But at the same time, we can also recognize that, that Jesus is not just playing up this scene, kind of doing all of this thing, just to, to uh, make a scene and delight in the power and delight in the recognition, delight in the, the royalty of it all. In fact, we know, right, Jesus is very well aware in this passage that he is coming to Jerusalem to die. There's no false sense that, that he's coming to be enthroned in glory at this time. He knows that <clears throat> this is the week he has been preparing for his entire ministry. And this week is actually the lowest point and on the scale of humiliation, we talk about how, how Jesus humbled himself <clears throat> in coming to earth, that uh, he humbled himself in, in being born, and that in a lowly condition. Right? He humbled himself in, uh, in growing up and undergoing all the miseries of this life. But especially he humbled himself in becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. 
and in remaining under the power of death for a time. This is that lowest point of Jesus' humiliation, and he knows full well that this is why he is coming into Jerusalem. And so that, this is part of why I say the themes in this passage kind of remind me of Christmas. At Christmas, we celebrate the Incarnation, and we talk about that time when Jesus, very intentionally, with complete control, right, he is Lord, but he very uh, intentionally chooses to set aside his glory in order to humble himself. To enter, not Jerusalem, but at Christmas, he enters into humanity. He enters into his own creation. Right, that he had created, he is the word by whom all things were made. And without him, nothing was made, and yet he chooses to enter into that. And now, here in, in chapter 21, he's taking that final step of setting aside the glory that is rightfully his. He knows he is Lord. He knows he has authority. He knows that he can control everything to his own desire, and yet the thing that he has come to do is to set all that glory aside and to go to the cross. We see that, you know, for Jesus, when we talk about his humility, for Jesus, humility was not a one-time decision. It was the entire course of his life. Over and over, humbling himself, constantly choosing to be a servant. Because Jesus, right, so we see both sides. He's coming as king, but he's a humble king. He, right? Jesus is the king of an upside-down kingdom. This is not what we expect. This is a kingdom where those who are first must be last, and those who would be greatest must become servant of all. Jesus shows us this because he's riding into his city on a donkey, right? not on a horse. He comes riding a donkey. In Revelation, we get that glorious picture right, of Jesus riding the white horse. And he has a sword that comes from his mouth, and, and on his leg is written his name, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and he comes in glory. But that's not this. And this time he comes in humility. He's riding a donkey. Verse 5, even, it, it spells it right out for us in case we miss all the hints that this passage gives us. It simply says, Say to the daughter of Zion, your king is coming humble and mounted on a donkey. Jesus is a better king because he is a humble king. You know, we know the reality. We know that human kings, those who are in positions of power, those who are in authority, they use their power to exalt themselves and to humiliate others. We know many people seek those positions of power ex exactly for that reason. Right? They seek out positions of power for their own sake, to raise their own status, to inflate their own sense of self-worth and importance and achieve their own ends. Jesus tells us this. He says, you know, kings of the Gentiles, they lord it over them, but he says to his disciples, among you it shall not be so. Among you it shall not be so. But whoever would be first must become a servant. And no, one, no one has ever become a servant like Jesus became a servant. Right? The most unexpected of all, that Jesus Christ, second person of the Trinity from all eternity, would become the servant of all. He's the one who sets aside all of the, the rights that he has as God to take the basin and the towel to wash his disciples' feet. Right? That he is symbolically giving all of himself up to serve his people. 
Jesus is a, a humble king. And, and what makes him the better king, as the humble king, is Jesus is one who now, he, he does this for us so we may relate to him and he may relate to us. Right? We often, right, if, if we think about those who are in positions of power and those people in our world who are exalted, perhaps who are rich, who are influential and powerful, we often feel, don't we, we have nothing in common with them. Those are people who must know nothing about what our life is like. Those of us who are hurting and who are suffering, who are walking through trials, we think Why? they have it easier. Right? They have all the money, all the authority. They have not known suffering. Jesus, on the other hand, though he was rich, yet for our sakes he would choose to become poor. And Hebrews says he had to be made like his brothers in every way so that he may be a sympathetic high priest, so that he may be a king who is not far away, who's not set away from the people with no access, but rather we have confidence to come into his presence and to know that he is a king who is like us, who, who chose of his own initiative to become like us, who humbles himself, that he may be one of his people. So we have a better king who also gives us a better hope. Because he's a better king, he brings a better hope. Look at verse 5. Now, Verse 5 is sort of the centerpiece of this story, really. This is the quotation that comes from the Old Testament <clears throat> that shows that Jesus riding a donkey into Jerusalem is actually a fulfillment of prophecy from the Old Testament. Now, anytime you read in the New Testament a fulfillment passage right, that talks about one of the prophecies from the Old Testament, always good to go back and read those prophecies in their own context. So if you have your Bible, turn over to Isaiah chapter 62. And we're going to get to Zechariah in a moment because what's interesting about this prophecy that Matthew quotes, it's actually two different ones that he puts together. Sort of a composite little deal here. <clears throat> but Isaiah 62, we're, that's where we're going to start. Because Isaiah 62, the end of that chapter, verses 10 through 12, it's actually in the middle of verse 11. There's just this line, say to the daughter of Zion. And that's where Matthew starts. He, he quotes that line, say to the daughter of Zion in, in Isaiah 62, 11. Um, but we'll see in a moment why this is so important that we go to this chapter as well. <clears throat> because when, Jesus is, or when Matthew rather, is thinking about the triumphal entry and he sees the way Jesus enters into Jerusalem, this is what's on his mind. Right? He sees what is happening, and this is what comes to mind for him, is these verses. Listen to Isaiah 62, uh, 10 through 12. Go through, go through the gates, prepare the way for the people, build up, build up the highway, clear it of stones, lift up a signal over the people. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, the uh, oops, I lost my face. behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, and you shall be called, sought out, a city not forsaken. These chapters at the end of Isaiah, all, all of these ending chapters, are some of my favorite chapters in the Old Testament because they describe the hope of the Old Testament people. They're such a glorious picture of the hope that they had Earlier chapters in Isaiah describe the exile and some of the suffering of the people, but these chapters towards the end describe their hope. 
And they are this glorious picture of what the people are waiting for and what they're holding on to. This is the hope that sort of lies like a glowing coal at their heart that sustains them in the midst of suffering, in the midst of difficulty. They know that this lies up ahead. They know that this is what they have to look forward to. That day that these chapters are describing, that day when God comes and makes all things right. They know that they are God's chosen people, and yet, despite that, they live in a world that is tainted by sin, that we live with sin and misery because of the fall. And so they know that, that, you know, things aren't the way that they're supposed to be. We suffer. Uh, But they know God is coming. This situation will not last forever. A day is coming when God the King will come and he will make all things right. He will judge the wicked, he will judge the oppressors, and he will have mercy on his people. And no longer on that day will they suffer under injustice or be oppressed by the foreign nations. Many of these passages, it's like a picture of Eden again, that God has come to make all things right. And so, Isaiah says, uh, this announcement is happening. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your salvation comes and his reward is with him. And this is a call to the people now to rejoice. Their king is coming. This whole chapter is really, we won't read the whole chapter of chapter 62, but the whole chapter is just a great description of the glory of that day when God is coming and God will make all things right. And and God says to Isaiah, announce that. Say to the daughter of Zion, announce that the good news is coming. And can't you just picture now, picture Matthew, Matthew, in his own way, lives in this time of suffering, but he sees Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey with the the crowds gathering along the roadside shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And Matthew thinks to himself, this is it. It's happening. I think this is the beginning of that restoration that God is going to bring when he makes all things right. Right? It might not look like that, right? To the eyes of the flesh, it might not look like that. What we see is, okay, Jesus is riding into Jerusalem and we know how this ends. It seems as though everything goes south, right? And Jesus, hailed as king, is five days later crucified right, by the Romans on, on the hated, cursed cross outside the city. How could this be the beginning of the hope? But we don't look by the eyes of the flesh, right? We look by faith. And we see that in God's unfathomable wisdom, it is. This is exactly how God was beginning the process of bringing salvation to his people. This is exactly an act of God's justice. This is exactly what he's going to do in order to set all things right. And so so here's Matthew and he says, here's what I'm going to use to describe this, the announcement that this is the beginning of it. This is the beginning of the hope that we've all been waiting for for so long. God is coming to make all things right. Now, look real fast at Zechariah chapter 9. This is, this is the more well-known of the verses that Matthew quotes. Zechariah, <clears throat> towards the end of the Old Testament. Second to last book of the Old Testament. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. This is the, the bulk of what he quotes Zechariah 9, verse 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, 
the foal of a donkey. And he goes on, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. And his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. See, this, this is the same thing that we read in Isaiah. It's a different context. It's a different time. But Zechariah is still looking forward to that great day of hope when God is going to come as king and he will finally make all things right. Everything that they have suffered, all the injustice that has been done, will be made right again. Right? He, so when he says, I will cut off the chariot, he says, There's no more war when God comes. Because Jesus Christ will come and he will speak peace. And his reign will be from the river to the ends of the earth. He will rule over all the nations. And he will speak peace. Look at the, if you have your Bible, look at the end of chapter 9 in Zechariah. This is his description of salvation. Uh, Chapter 9, verse 16. On that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness and how great is his beauty. Green shall make the young men flourish and new wine the young women. It's just this picture of of flourishing and salvation and peace uh, and paradise. That God comes to make all things new. And again, when Matthew sees Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, he says, this is it. This is what is happening. This is what we've been waiting for. This is that time when God is coming in his glory to make all things new. He is beginning that process. Think about how you would hear these passages, and and I mean the Isaiah and the Zechariah, these pictures of hope. How would you listen to those passages if you were part of the the early reign covenant church? That's the church in China uh, that we've been praying for that was raided by the government officials two weeks ago and Uh, Many of the leaders were arrested and and their houses were searched and some of their belongings were confiscated, all because they were Christians. And we even saw online, we were able to read some of the letters that that they had written, some of the letters from the wife of the pastor who who talked about the decisions she had to make on Sunday morning. Her her, uh, hardship on a Sunday morning was... On the one hand, there is nowhere I would rather be than with the church worshiping God and singing his praise. On the other hand, I might get arrested. But she says, of course I'm going to go. Of course I'm going to go. I mean, we have our own struggles. Not not to minimize any of our struggles by comparison, uh, even though when I think of what I go through on a Sunday morning trying to find shoes for the kids and, and get lunch, and it, it seems kind of silly in comparison to what other people are, are struggling with. But think about how they in those situations would have heard verses like this that talk about the coming days when God will reign as king and his people will shine like jewels on a crown and they will flourish because God will speak peace and he will bring the nations to justice. When you you know suffering, and some of us know it deeply, and you read passages like this, you, don't, you no longer read them with sort of a detached, kind of academic sort of interest in figuring out what these things mean. These are, these are promises that you hold on to for dear life. I, I think that's how Matthew and the other disciples would have been feeling in Jesus' day, and now they see Jesus 
entering into Jerusalem. And these passages that they're holding on to for dear life, they say, this is it. This is the beginning. This is God coming to make all things new. And he does that. How does he make all things new? He does it by the cross. He does it by coming to shed his own blood. That is how he speaks peace to his people. The first thing is not that he comes with a sword to conquer. The first thing is he comes with a cross to die. And by his blood, he has made peace for us with God. So that now, being justified by faith in Jesus Christ, knowing that he paid the penalty, he took the wrath of God due to us for our sins when he died, now we have the peace. Jesus got the wrath so that we may have the peace. We now have confidence to come into the presence of God. And we see by faith that Jesus going to the cross has done exactly what he said he would do. To speak peace. To reign as king. And yes, we... We do continue to await that day when, when these promises shall cover the earth as the water covers the sea. But it's begun, and it's begun with the death of Jesus. We know that by his death, Jesus has disarmed the rulers and authorities. By his death, he has defeated evil. He has made peace with God for us by the blood of his cross. He has transferred us out of the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. And it's easy sometimes to read the gospel accounts and to think, well, everything kind of goes south during that last week and Jesus ends up being killed. It doesn't go south. Jesus has entered into this as king in complete control. He knows exactly what's going to happen. And it happens the way he plans for it to happen, which means he is a better king. He has a better hope that he gives to his people and he gives them, therefore, a better joy. So the end of Matthew 21, uh, if we're back in our original passage, Matthew 21, shows us again there's joy in this passage. There's joy in this passage because how could there not be, right? This is a time when we're thinking about joy anyway. Mary is rejoicing, the shepherds, the angels, everyone is rejoicing, singing praises to God. And we see it here as Jesus, the humble king, rides into Jerusalem, the crowds are rejoicing. Right? This is that classic Palm Sunday scene. We know it so well that here comes Jesus riding on the palm branches and the crowds are gathering and they're shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now, that, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, is is from Psalm 118. They're quoting the Psalms here, and we don't, we don't have to turn there. But Psalm 118 is a, a joyful song. It's a song of praise and adoration and joy. Uh, scholars think perhaps that was a psalm that was originally sung during Passover time uh, when people were coming to Jerusalem to celebrate that original Passover, when Jesus saved, or when, well, when God saves his people by the blood of the Lamb out of Egypt. And they praised God saying these words, saying, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Right? Praising God for his salvation. And now the crowds are shouting the same thing. As Jesus comes to save his people by the blood of the Lamb again. At the end of Matthew 23, Jesus tells us that at, at his second coming, he says, we will again shout the same thing. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He tells the crowds they will not see him again until they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
indicating that will be the cry again at his second coming. When Jesus comes to save, that is the cry. And so at this Christmas time, can we not join our hearts in this same cheer, commemorating the coming of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who comes in the name of the Lord as King, but also who comes in humility, who comes full of grace and truth, who comes full of mercy to save his people, to die their death, to die our death, in order to set in motion all of these great promises. This is the joy. Now, now the reason I say that as Christians we have a better joy is because we have a more secure joy. Right? We have a joy that is based on the death of Jesus. And that, that is a better joy than anyone else celebrates at Christmas. We have a joy based on the death of Jesus. Everything that Jesus has given. Right? The scripture tells us all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ and they are guaranteed because he has died for us. That the hope we have, our hope is based on the death of Jesus. That by his blood he has conquered both his and our enemies. Our faith is based on the death of Jesus. And, and our joy also is based on his death. Right? Otherwise, where is our joy? Otherwise, our joy is just a, a fleeting thing. It's, it's one of these things that we struggle to get a hold of and maybe we feel like we, we have it for a moment and then it's lost because, because it's based on the changing circumstances of, of everyday life. But as Christians, we have a far better joy. A joy that is guaranteed once and for all that is yours because Jesus has died. One of our hymns, we, we sing these words, Solid joys and lasting treasures, none but Zion's children know. Friend, there are solid joys, lasting treasures, that are known only to those who know and believe the death of Jesus. It is a, a better joy guaranteed by the blood of Jesus. Let me, let me just explain it this way. Um, think about the fellowship that we share as believers. Our fellowship is also based on the death of Jesus. This, this helps uh, me get a hold of this. A little while back, I was, I was talking with a friend who was having some, some relational problems and, and having trouble being reconciled. And, and the more I heard about it, uh, it became clear to me that I could understand why. They had troubles that were, were real and they were deep. But the reason that they had hope for their reconciliation is because they were both believers. And so the fellowship that they shared was not based on, on personality. It's not based on common interest. It was not based on how well they got along with each other or how much effort they could put in. It was based on the blood of Jesus that has united us to Christ and has united believers in one body. That is what their fellowship of believers is based on. It is a blood-bought fellowship. That is the reason that, that we as the family and the body of Christ come to one table together every Sunday. And not because we've found some common ground in anything else, but because the blood of Jesus Christ unites us in one body, gives us a Christian fellowship. That is a better fellowship than just regular worldly friendship has to offer. We have Christian fellowship one with another. And it's the same with our joy. Our joy is not a worldly joy. As believers, we have hope and we have joy because of the death of Jesus at the cross because we have a better king who came in humility. 
who came celebrating, coming as the one who comes in the name of the Lord to do one thing, and that was to die to save his people. That's why his name is Jesus. That's what the angel says. And so, here's my invitation to you. As we celebrate Christmas this week, on Tuesday morning, when you wake up, say with heart and soul, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And we can rejoice that that Christmas, it's not about our giving presents to one another, is it? That would be a, a flimsy joy. Our joy is that Jesus has come in the name of the Lord, that our humble King has entered into our reality to save us from our sins, to die for us at the cross, to give us hope, joy, fellowship, and salvation. Friends, let's pray together. Lord, we we praise you and we thank you that Jesus came at Christmas for us, that he was a Savior who was born to die, that his life was focused on his death so that he might bring us a better hope, that he might secure joy for his people, that we now live not for ourselves, but may we live for our Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, this may be a hectic week for us, So we pray that your spirit will take these words from your word, press them on our hearts, give us gladness. Give us gladness through who Jesus is and all that he has done for us. We thank you for your mercy and your love. Through Jesus we pray. Amen.